Hi everyone and welcome back to Dot to Dot, an education podcast for teachers that shines light on things that are working well in industry and connects them with the classroom. I'm Ryder Tracy, Head of Educational Transformation at Creatable, and in today's episode I have the great privilege to be talking with Dr. Vanessa Perota, wildlife scientist, science communicator, and advocate for women in STEM. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm so happy your listeners are here ready to listen to what we have to say. You're a, uh, you're, you're a pretty hard uh, person to define. I've been reading up and been a fan for a while, and you do so much different work with whales and other wildlife and all these different projects. Importantly, you go to a lot of places to teach people about science. Can I just start us off by you just telling us a little bit more about your role and what you do? Yeah, well, great question. So it is a big thing to answer. And I, I guess for your listeners, I do, I wear a few different hats. And so I'm primarily a marine scientist, which works in the marine environment where I've done my PhD. I'm looking at whale conservation and human impacts with these animals and how we can minimize that as well as many other things. But also I've taken my transferable skills, which have led me to work on another project right now, which I'm leading as a chief scientist, which is looking at trying to detect illegal wildlife trafficking in mail and luggage pathways. And that's a collaborative project with RapiScan Systems, the Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment and Taronga Zoo. So I'm, I'm wearing hats on land and in the water, so in the water as well, working with Macquarie University. So you'd say you can call myself a wildlife scientist at present because I work in both fields and I love both areas, but obviously the ocean is my passion. Well, wildlife scientist sounds like it, it nearly, I have to say, it nearly sounds like, you know, if I was to talk to my nine-year-old daughter, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a dolphin trainer. I want to be a wildlife scientist. I want to do that. So, well, um, I must point out, I did become a dolphin trainer. That was my dream when I was younger. You did? I, I always wanted to be a dolphin trainer. And for your listeners that don't know, I grew up in Canberra outside on a farm and there was the movie Free Willy, which maybe some of your listeners might know. I've said this to a few in a few talks and I've had blank faces looking at me like, what is that movie? <laughs> um, so hopefully I'm getting the demographic right. But, yes, I wanted to become a dolphin trainer and I was fortunate to do that after I finished my science degree and I worked with sea lions and that was fantastic. But it wasn't everything. I wanted more and I wanted to do more. And so I found that I entered more study because it was that natural career progression to do more and have more doors open. I'm fascinated now. Can we go back a few steps and um, back into school? Did, did your experiences with science in school lead directly to that? Or did you have to kind of drive that passion from, you know, your, the Free Willy trilogy and the uh, Andre and all the other kind of great wildlife movies that we see? Did it come from in school or from out or a combination of both? I would say it's a combination of both. I remember, so primary school, I have very fond memories, but I can remember classes such as science class where we're doing experiments and I found that really fun. I wasn't, I must admit, the brightest child at school. I think I was very, I'm always very applied, but I don't think I'm not naturally gifted in terms of brightness. So I had to work very hard to understand things and also to Really, I think there was the idea of loving something that allowed me to go forth and ask questions and then learn more about things. So, yeah, it was that combination. But I do remember particularly high school having really good science teachers still to this day, and I've been in contact with them. And also in primary school, my school librarian, I've been in contact with her. It's so great to reconnect and I'll hopefully be able to go back to my old primary school and and 
connect with those students. And so it's that next generation of inspiring to say, hey, I was in your position. I now get to do these things because I worked really hard, but also I followed my passion. For me as a teacher, when I'm hearing you talk about that, I'm hearing for me, science was fun. You know, for for me, science was like about experimenting. As a teacher, sometimes I used to feel um, a little bit overwhelmed, you know, because I guess the nature of science is experimentation, you know, and we don't necessarily know exactly what's going to happen. And I found when that's happening with a lot of kids in the room, I was a bit fearful of it. So in my school, there was like a very good, confident science teacher, you know, and they're the science person. And I was a little bit kind of more tentative. Do you think science is about getting in and having a go and finding out what's sort of happening? Or, you know, is there any kind of advice you've got for us as trying to inspire that next step? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I always see teachers as having an incredible role and in, in really important. And we, especially parents, sometimes forget just how important teachers are. And I think the COVID pandemic has enabled them to realise just how, you know, you guys are doing a great job. But I think it's all about understanding that as a teacher, you are there to help that child ask questions and be curious and assist that. And so if you can see a natural curiosity, doing anything you can to go, you know what, let's learn together. It's not necessarily about thinking you need all these huge qualifications to do science. I mean, when you become a teacher, you might assist in many different topics, but it's at asking questions and engaging and seeing what might happen in a safe capacity, obviously, is something that one could always think about when they approach any subject, really, by just having a positive attitude, but also a nurturing one as well, and one which enables the child to think for themselves at times, but also being really supportive and encouraging is something that I'm sure everyone, especially your listeners right now, will go, that's the kind of environment I'd want for my child. Yeah, definitely. In in your role as as a science communicator, I'm going to try and ask you a hard question here. And <laughs> what's the hardest thing you've ever had to try and communicate? Oh, okay. That's a really good one. So I must point out that as a scientist, I never thought I would become a science communicator. And the reason being is because, well, you just naturally, you work out that you have to talk about your work. So one of the things that was quite tricky for me to have to explain was talking about collecting whale lung microbiota or if I were to say to you now collecting whale snot you'd be instantly going oh yeah I get that Um, and trying to break down just why we're collecting it and the levels at which we're collecting this on a scientific level is quite in depth so that's how much of my career has progressed by breaking that down into simple ways of communicating what we're doing we're using drones to fly through whale snot which is that visible plume spray that a whale has when it takes a breath and we're collecting microscopic organisms from their lungs to learn more about them in a way that doesn't have to hurt them. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's that would be explaining that scientifically would be a lot more challenging than what I've just done. Yeah, definitely. But, but the accessibility with which you can articulate it is really useful, you know. And I, and that's I think that is a skill that teachers do have. You know, it's picking out what are the important bits. And what I heard from you then was you know, you found a way to make it relatable to me. You know, I have to say, I was like, oh, I'm not quite sure what you're saying here. And then you said, you know, it's whale snot and we're flying drones through it and we're grabbing it and we're collecting it and we can track whale health and we can track all this information from it. You're very succinct and, you know, successful with that kind of strategy. I think that's something that we can um, use a lot of. It occurs to me, though, that that is a great segue for me to ask you about STEM. 
because obviously the drone is the technology there and you've got clearly the science. I imagine there's a fair amount of data that you're collecting in your mathematics component. Yeah, could you um, unpack kind of your journey with STEM and I guess the interconnectedness of those components in your work now? Well, STEM is a great sort of a summary of what I do from day to day. And so when I saw STEM come up a few years ago, and, and I must say it's only a few years ago that I learned the word STEM because it, well, it hasn't been around for many years. And so STEM was a really good way of putting my work into practice to explain to people what we're doing. And so, you know, it's got, it has a science component, the, the tech and all of the other components that go with it. And it's a great, especially with the drone work, because the drone work requires technology and the engineering component, but also it it has the covers the mathematical side and the the biology components of living things. And so, being able to package that up and explain it in a relatable way that people would be using the idea of STEM in the classroom every day is a really important thing. It just kind of gives a title to try and encapsulate different forms of being inquisitive, but also it's it's a really good question because. If you were to say, okay, we're going to do science at school, back in the day, or at least when I was at school, it was you do an experiment. But if you were to say, okay, we're going to do a STEM-based topic, we're going to do STEM now, we're going to talk about STEM today, it could you could be jumping in a huge number of different topics that's relatable to science, which is a really great thing. And even STEAM, which some teachers would be going, oh, yes, with just the, has the arts in it. That's also a really cool thing to talk, talk about as well because a lot of the things that we do is quite visual and artistic, even the design of our drones that we created, and that's a really cool thing to put in. So it's bringing that collaborative nature of having people from different fields to come together in science to make great things happen, and that's what STEM provides us with an opportunity to do, which is a great thing. Yeah, I, uh, I have to say I am going to be very brave here and, and share my own vulnerability from my classroom at one point. Uh, we endeavoured to create this really great uh, like fish farm. You know, we had the diorama going and we had the kind of science and the whole thing and it was quite, uh, I was out of my comfort zone because it was quite a big mess going on in the room. I liked everything kind of in its place. So we had to pivot from STEM at one point. You know, our culminating activity became an art installation inspired by the mess that was left. So, you know, I don't think that's authentically STEAM, <laughs> but um, I certainly take your, take your point. One of the, the wrestles for us as teachers is uh, you mentioned kind of the theme of STEM going through and enabling that curiosity. Like I always struggle because explicit instruction is so pivotal, you know. So if I'm teaching um, two-digit addition, you know, I want to teach two-digit addition, but I know if I teach it with relevance and use, you know, for that, that there's some kind of advantage there as well. Do you have any kind of insights, I guess is what I'm going for, you know, around the balance between uh, explicit kind of domain-driven learning and then the kind of culmination of curiosity that's, you know, going cross cross domains or cross subject areas? Well, I think if you can think back to when you do a, a, a lecture at university or even you are going to teach a subject at school, so you, you have a lesson plan and your lesson plan is very structured and so you have, okay, this is what we're going to teach today, this is what we're going to do. I mean, starting off with providing students background of what you're talking about that, that information that equips them to go forth and do other things by starting off maybe with what you would say, this is how we do it and this is how we're going to do it, let's have a try at that. 
and then having a balance of that versus explorative thinking that kind of might allow students to go okay I've got the recipe to do this but what if we did this and how would this work this way but then some students would also need the opportunity for things to be provided to them in terms of how that understand it and that relatability so for example if we're doing counting or addition today if you to have 10 playstations i don't know i'm using an example and you add 20 more how much would that give you instantly they go oh that's something i really like but you're secretly adding um, knowledge around that in another capacity i'm sure that would be really helpful for some students whereas you would have probably other students that wouldn't need that at all. But it's all, again, again, creating that balance of teaching like this but also being adaptable in this capacity as well. Oh, I love that phrasing. You know, it's, it's it, it, it feels like to me, you know, if I, if I translate that to your um, kind of journey so far, it sounds like you've pursued that really disciplined kind of knowledge base. I guess they, they talk about serendipity as a, great asset of learning you know we discovered penicillin by seeing you know the way the mold grew but you have to be informed enough to understand that that's something worth observing as someone who travels to antarctica tonga madagascar the galapagos studying these amazing creatures what are the kind of problem solving challenges you know or what's maybe the biggest challenge you know for you in the field because uh, I'm sure, like the lesson plan, it doesn't go to script every time <laughs> you get out there. What are the kind of biggest challenges and what are the skills that help you succeed uh, when those problems arise? Well, being in the field does require you to be organised. And I'm I'm a very much organised person, but things will come up unexpectedly at times. And that's good to know that. So by being adaptable and flexible is really handy. Um, when you're in remote areas like, for example, Madagascar, even Tonga, I know, and I'm using, I'm not using Antarctica because for Antarctica, you need to really have everything in place, especially working on a ship in case anything goes wrong. Um, but places like Tonga and, and Madagascar, you know, something goes wrong, you might have sort of a hospital to go to, for example, or there might be this, it wouldn't be as what Australia would have, but they would be there. Whereas if you were going to Antarctica, there would be nothing like that. So, you know, you've, you've really got to, there are times when, so for example, in Tonga, I was walking up a hill every day to use a theodolite, which is a surveyor's tool, which uses Pythagoras theorem to work out where you are with a reference object and where the whale is. So I had to make sure there was a laptop going up the top there to an area that was remote and it's secret because I was looking at people's behaviour in terms of whale watching and swimming. So I didn't want to be known that I was there. Um, and then I remember having to carry a battery, a car battery on my back every day to go up to the hill to power my electronics, you know, that, that kind of thing. And then one day my battery wasn't working. All those little things, they're a tiny example, but being adaptive and flexible meant that I was able to overcome these challenges and kind of have a bit of a laugh about it at the end of the day. At times there are where you kind of go, oh, my gosh, am I ever going to get through field work? Will I ever get through this? The weather's terrible. You've just kind of got to allow insurance time for you to know that things might go wrong. But don't worry, I've allowed some time for that to happen. So it's all about getting your mental mind in a good space to be able to prepare for the worst almost but also be adaptable and, hey, you know, down the road we could pick up this or we're in a remote area, what do we know in advance? We're working with the local community. How can they assist us to acquire certain tools? That kind of thing. That's a really extreme example, though. 
Oh, well, I love it. <laughs> Not everyone I talk to um, has tried to carry a car battery up a mountain in Tonga <laughs> to check uh, <laughs> the diving patterns of whales and tourists. So, I mean, that's a pretty amazing example. It, it does lead me to think in our schools, some of the things we measure, you know, there's a lot of accountability in schools at the moment, and uh, there's a lot of pressure on mathematics results or, you know, uh, reading literacy levels and those sorts of things, rightfully so, because they're enablers, you know, of all of these other great things. But some of the things that we're proudest of as teachers is that attitudinal stuff that you talked about there. Do you think that adaptability, you know, is an attribute that can be fostered, that's a skill that can be learned and practiced and improved? I think it probably should be. I don't know if it it could be necessarily. I'm sure there's some students that might come up against a brick wall with that, and that's 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 fine, and we need to respect that. But certainly, giving it a try is something that we should be teaching students about. I would suggest it's only a good thing because beyond school, things in life might throw certain challenges up, and if you've encouraging and fostering a group to be resilient and adaptable, that it can only go in their favour, and and that goes for teachers as well. Some years you might have fantastic groups where you think, oh, my gosh, my class is so great, whereas you might be challenged from time to time with certain students. That's all part of the job. You're there to be resilient and adaptable. And this is the kind of thing that makes the job interesting, right? I mean, I'm not I'm not a professional teacher, but I do lecturing and the students that I have will be a lot older than the students you're probably teaching as well. But at the end of the day, the principles are pretty simple. You've got to make sure you communicate. You've got to be present. You've got to be encouraging, supportive. You've got to be someone that, that the students will want to listen to so they can learn and grow rather than being someone at the front of the room who's boring, who's not fostering any sort of, oh, we're going to talk about maths today. I mean, look at Eddie Worry, how exciting he is about maths. I wish I had someone like him when I was younger. In fact, thinking about women scientists, I can't recall a female role model when I was growing up doing what I do. There was people like David Attenborough, but that's it. If I had different people growing, I was growing up, that might have dictated where I am today or I might be where I am because I've seen an avenue now to go forth and to make sure I communicate the science message, which is really important, especially as we come up to International Day of Women and Girls in Science, which is coming up. Yes. Well, I'm certainly uh, very, very glad, you know, that, that my daughter's got people like yourself to look up to that are uh, filling that void. And I think that uh, it's a wonderful thing you're doing. I am going to uh, ask you one last question to, uh, to kind of connect back into what you've just said there. So this one is, if you could teach every 10-year-old in the world one lesson, um, what would you want them to learn? Oh, that's a great question. I think what it would definitely be would be something that's transferable because you'd want this, if I could teach them something, you want this to be used every day and throughout their lives. So I'll start with that. I think one of the things I would probably say is I would teach the children to have give it their best and know that if they've given their best, then that's all they can do. And you know who told me that? My unfortunately, my mum has passed away, but she told me that when I was a young girl and she said, Vanessa, have you done the best you can do? And I said, well, yes. And she said, well, there's nothing else you can do. And that has always stuck with me. And I think that's really powerful because there are times where you think you're being hard on yourself. And then there might be times where you go, oh, actually, I haven't done as much as I could have done. I'll do some more. But it's a really good way of kind of allowing you to settle yourself and to know that I've given it a good shot. I've done my very best. Just be patient 
the other thing is patience as well would be a good thing. But yeah, <laughs> yes. that's, that would be my tip. Yeah, what do they say? Patience is a virtue, but hard to execute. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, I think that's a, a beautiful message because, and one uh, definitely for our 10-year-olds, but probably for all our educators out there too, because what I heard was make sure, you know, that that motivation and drive comes from within rather than comparison to, to outside, you know, and sometimes, uh, you know, our world can be kind of competitive, you know, at times. And if you've got that kind of uh, true north coming from yourself, you know, and you know that you're pushing yourself as hard as you can, as strong as you can, then that's where you should have the pride. I think it's a beautiful message. So. Yeah, thank you. And to be authentic, be yourself. Don't be a carbon copy of someone else. Just do your thing and don't worry. Put those blinkers on. Just go forth and have some time off from social media or don't even get on social media as well. <laughs> Good advice there. Vanessa, thank you so much for your time today. I know you've got a really busy schedule and a ship to catch to Antarctica in the not too distant future. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Reflecting on the conversation with Dr. Vanessa, I have a few takeaways. The first was how important transferable skills are post-schooling. Vanessa is clearly a brilliant problem solver, but when she spoke about being adaptable, she emphasised planning and preparation. Even though she knows her experience in the field will be different to what she planned, she still valued the plan. It was as though to be a good problem solver or to be highly adaptable, she needed to know what she was adapting from and what she was adapting to. Sometimes in the classroom, the planning can feel a bit tedious, particularly when you know things aren't going to go to plan. But there's wisdom in the old adage, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And I think Vanessa encapsulated that for us. It was also inspiring to see the role Vanessa has taken advocating and promoting girls in STEM. She spoke to the need for female role models and that you need to see it to be it. And the message, try your hardest and follow your passion, rings pretty true for me and no doubt all educators. The final takeaway I had from Vanessa was how she didn't plan to be a science communicator and that that job evolved from what she was doing. The more she had to say, the more she found herself in situations where she had to communicate. She had to communicate complex concepts such as collecting whale snot with drones, but fundamentally, the communication principles that she put forward are relevant for all of us. It comes down to being clear, relatable and succinct so that the listener can attach meaning in a way that's relevant to them. Thanks for listening to Dot to Dot. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave a review. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't, what you like more of, or what you learned. Reviews help us reach more listeners so that we can keep bringing you awesome conversations about what you want to hear about. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can keep up to date with each episode as they come out. Dot to Dot is a creatable podcast hosted by me, Ryder Tracy, and produced by Sophie Ellis. This episode was recorded on Darawal and Darug country. Catch you next week.